0: Many times health can come down to simply checking a few numbers. I mean, if you go to the doctor and he takes your temperature, he's looking for a number, right? Something around ninety eight point six. If you go to the doctor and he takes your blood pressure, he's looking for a number, something around, you know, one twenty over eighty. You go to the doctor and you step on the scale and then he's also looking for a number. Do you know what number that is? Twenty pounds less than whatever it says. Uh, and that's pretty much the, the way it works. Now, I had an interesting experience as the doctors probably about a year ago. I went to get my physical because I'm old now. And so you have to do that when you're getting old. And so I went and got my physical, got a bunch of tests run. And then uh, about a week later, I got a call back from the doctor and they wanted me to come in because they said that there was a problem with uh, one of my tests. Something was really, really low that shouldn't have been really low. So I came in, sat down, you know, the doctor comes up to me and says, listen, I'm reading this. And you know, your glucose level is like ridiculously low. And so she says, I, I just want to ask you one question. And I said, what's that? She says, were you conscious when these tests were taken? And I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure I was. And she said, well, then there must have been a mistake. Runs the test again. Everything worked out fine. And, and I'm telling you that that whole week, I thought that, you know, pardon me, when they said there was a problem, we need you to come in. There's a couple days in between. I was convinced I was dying. Uh, you know, I'm like telling people I loved them, you know, I'm like, listen, I may not see you again. Sure enough, there was this some guy had stayed up too late and couldn't type the numbers correctly. And that ended up being being the issue. But here, here's the reason why I say all of that is because today all of us are getting an exam. We're all getting a medical exam and it's Dr. Jesus who's giving the exam. You see, we've been watching him, if you've been with us, throughout our study in Revelation and specifically as we've been going through Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters written to the seven churches, we're going through these seven churches and he's been giving a diagnosis and a prescription to each of these churches that we've been looking at. If you remember way back when, about five weeks ago in the church at Ephesus, he told them that they really needed a heart transplant. Because the problem that they had was love. The church at Smyrna, he told them they needed to lift some weights. Because there was a problem. that There was going to be some persecution that was coming. And he didn't want them to buckle under the pressure. The church at Pergamos, they needed to do some exercise. Because their lack of spiritual discipline was causing them problems. The church at Thyatira, his his diagnosis of them was they needed to change their spiritual diet. Because it was killing them. The church at Sardis that we looked at last week, he just told them to to call the funeral home because they were done. They were dead. And this church that we're going to look at, Philadelphia, of the seven, is the only church that Jesus gives a complete and total clean bill of health. Now, I want you to think about that. In every church that we've looked at, Jesus has given a commendation. He's given a correction and then he's given them something to look forward to, something to aspire to, and given them a challenge. But you know what takes place? This church is the one he says, hey, just keep doing what you're doing because everything that you're doing seems to be right. Because this was the church that was not only healthy, but holy, not only spiritual, but also strong. It was the kind of church and the kind of Christians that you and I want to find ourselves being. See, it's been, I guess, seven or eight weeks now that we started a series that we're calling It's the End of the World as We Know It. And we're working our way, verse by verse, through the book of Revelation. And as we've been working our way through Revelation 2 and 3, as I mentioned, and specifically in these seven letters written to these seven churches, we've been trying to remind you that there's four different applications for these churches. There's what's called a near application. And that is that Jesus was speaking to a specific church at a specific time. He was speaking to the specific church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamus and Thyatira and, and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. That there was a specific church at a specific time. There's also a general application that it can speak to churches in general at any given time. That's why Jesus says at the end of each letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches." Then there's also a prophetic application, the prophetic application being that each of these churches spoken and written in the way and in the order in which they were written. Speak to us of church history in totality. But then there's also, I believe, what's the most important is that is the personal application. And that is that we can read these letters and extract the principles, extract what is that Jesus is saying to this church, to our lives personally and see what it is that God wants to do. In us Now, this church, Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia means literally brotherly love. And by the way, I'm not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, this is an, a church in the area of Asia Minor in the first century. But this church represents a period of time in church history from about 1830 up until the rapture of the church. Now, I'd give you the date for the rapture. I just don't have it quite figured out yet, but come back next week. I may have it. Um, so here's the thing. Now, this church is called the missionary church. Now, they're called the missionary church because this represents a period of time when something happened in the church. They just kind of woke up. Uh, And there was a a gentleman by the name of of, of Hudson Taylor who walked into his church one day and said that there's all of these people in China who have never heard the gospel. And I want you to send me there so that I might preach the gospel to them. They got to understand that prior to that, the church had sent out a missionary And probably close to a thousand years. I mean, it had been a long time since the church had been actively seeking to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ who were far from Him and go into areas where the name of Christ was not very, was not very well known. And so this began a whole movement of, of missionary work of people sent, of churches and organizations sending missionaries all over the world. But we're going to learn from this church. I believe it is so interesting and it's important for us because we're going to learn not only what a healthy church looks like. We're going to learn what a healthy Christian looks like. And so we're going to see the things that make up a healthy church. And if we are unhealthy in one of these areas, one, so like, like we see one of the numbers and it's like it's supposed to be 98.6, but it's like 100.1. We realize that there's some things that need to change, some things that need to be tweaked. And we can see that as we see what health really looks like. We're going to start in Revelation three. In verse 7, and here's what we read. It says, unto to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, as I mentioned, there's... Three keys that we're going to look at to what a healthy believer looks like. And here's the first one. And that is, that if, you're, if you have your outlines handy, and that is uh, that a healthy believer is dependent on Jesus. He's dependent on Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me explain it this way. Uh, when I was in high school, I had gotten... Uh, it was a Saturday and I was working. I worked at a fine establishment that you may have heard of called Wendy's. Uh, anyway... So I'm working at this uh, fine burger establishment, and I, I got off early. And so I, I got home, and uh, now here was my problem. While someone had given me a ride home, I realized that I had forgotten the keys to the house. Now, and my mom wasn't home. And so uh, now I'm in a situation. I did what I, the thing, the very thing I wanted to get out of working so I could go home. But now I'm home, and I've, I'm locked out of the house. So I kind of walk around, figure out what I'm going to do. I hop the fence into the backyard because I'm figuring it's probably better to be in the back of the house than in the front of the house. And I realize that the porch is open. So I sit down and my grandmother has this like old black and white TV in the back of the house. So what happens is, is that I sit down I'm, uh, and, I, and this is like the most boring thing. And I'm turning the channels on this little like eight inch television watching like an old episode of Matlock. Uh, and I'm thinking like I am just dying of boredom here. I should have just flipped some more burgers. I mean, because that was more exciting than than watching this old episode of Matlock. But then I got this idea. What if I tried to break into my own house? That just sounds like the smartest thing that I could do. So what I do is I start looking for windows that perhaps we were negligent to lock. Well, sure enough, I find this window in my living room that that uh, my mom hadn't locked. So now I start. I kind of I take off the screen just like, you know, any criminal would do. And so I I, and then I I open the window and then it was like right behind where our stereo was. so I kind of push the stereo out of the way and I start climbing in. Well, you can only imagine what happens when I'm about halfway in the door opens. My mom walks in. She sees some person halfway inside of our house. She goes and t- finds the largest object that she can. and She's about to smash it on me. And I said, stop, please. It's your son. And she stopped. And then, you know, now, you know how there are moments in life when you just think like, how am I going to really explain this? And uh, and then right then, like parents usually ask the question that it doesn't really make any sense. And I'm a parent. And I'll probably ask it, too. But they, they ask the question, you know, as they see their son trying to break into their own house They say, why didn't you just use the key I gave you? And, uh, you know, and that's when I say, because I'm training for a career as a burglar. And um, and I mean, so anyway, I get in and tell the story and everything's okay. And uh, but the thing is, this Jesus opens this letter with a discussion about keys. And you say, well, what's the point of it? Now, keys represent authority because they give us access. They give us access. But he's saying this. Jesus says that he holds the key of David. Now, what does that mean? He's got the key of David. He's got somebody else's key, as opposed to maybe his own key. What, what does that mean? It's actually a reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. And, and there's a point as to why Jesus is referencing this, because there's a specific point that he wants to make about what a healthy believer looks like. There's a guy by the name of Shebna. Now, if you're thinking about naming a child, you've got one coming up. Let me consider Shebna. I can promise he'll be the only one in his school with that name. Now, Um, he's the steward in the time of King Hezekiah. Now, a steward, as we've talked about in the past, is a money manager, somebody who handles somebody else's money. So I want you to imagine, Hezekiah is the king of Israel at the time. There's this guy named Shebna who's kind of overseeing all of the funds. So he's kind of like the secretary of the treasury, all right, Um, in, in in our terms. But he decides, this guy Shebna, that he's going to use the funds from... Uh, that the the nation has, right? And he's going to buy himself a chariot. Basically, he bought himself a new car. And then it also says in Isaiah 22 that he bought himself not only a new car, but also a grave. I don't know if that says something about his driving, but nonetheless, he bought himself a car and he bought himself a grave. And so Isaiah now comes on the scene and tells him God's decree of removing him as the steward. And what this means is, is that the key that he was given is now going to be taken away. The access that he once had is being taken from him. Now, you've got to understand that this is very symbolic because the steward of the whole nation had this giant key. I, this is not even, I'm not even kidding. He would have this giant key that he would carry around with him as a symbol of the kind of trust and the kind of access that he had in the nation at that time. Now, listen to what it says in Isaiah, what his word, uh, God's word to this guy, Shebna, is about be removing him. Here's what it says. It says, then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hands. So he's telling Shebna, I'm, t- I'm using this guy, uh, Eliakim, he's going to have your job. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, the key of David, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, here's the idea. The idea is this. Shevna, you've been un you, You haven't been faithful. You've been untrustworthy. So I'm actually removing the key that I was going to give to you and I'm going to give it to this guy, Eliakim, because I know that he's going to be trustworthy because he's going to open when it's supposed to be open and he's going to shut. And when it's shut, it stays shut because he is a guy who is trustworthy. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I've got the key of David. I can open and no one can shut. I can shut and no one can open. He's saying, listen, I am worthy of your trust and the stuff that Jesus is going to say to this church is so important. And he, and he leads into it by saying, I'm someone who's worthy of your trust. You see, the, the sign of a healthy Christian is that they trust God above all else. The sign of immaturity as a Christian is that when God closes a door, we try climbing in through the window. We try breaking into a place that God hasn't really given to us. And when we do, God closes the door and we try to bust in through the window. Here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, you're not really trustworthy. Now, you know, you can see when we've made those climb through the window decisions, when God has closed the door, because we use two words, right? Here they are. Right here they are. Yeah, but. That's when we know we're, we're crashing through the door or, or, you know, we're trying to knock the door down. We're trying to open something that God has closed because we want to make a decision, right? Now, here's here's a decision in the book of Proverbs uh, chapter 22. Here's what it says. It says to not be a cosigner for somebody that is to be a guarantee. So if somebody goes to buy a car and they can't afford to buy a car. Here's what the Bible says. Don't be the signer for them that if they don't end up paying that you have to pay because that's just very unwise. Now. Uh, now here's what happens. The Bible says that, and then this is what someone will say. Yeah, but, yeah, but my friend, cousin, brother's, mother's, uncle's, former roommate really needs my help. Well, then the question would be, well, why does it, why do they need your help? Why can't they sign for themselves? You see, because they had a car before and they didn't pay for it, so now they need me to sign because, but they've promised me that they're going to pay for it. Yeah, well, you know, the Bible says, yeah, but, you see what we're trying to do. God's closing the door, and we can say, "Well, I, I'm not going to." Well, I, God's saying no, but I can just go in through the window, and I'm sure it'll be okay. Well, here's how it happens. You know, and and uh, the book of Deuteronomy it talks about giving God the tithe, giving God the ten percent of what we make, and that God would bless us. Now we say, "Well, do you honor God with your with your resources?" Well, no, but well, I know it says that. Yeah, but my situation's a little different. Oh, it is how's it how's it how's it a little different well you got to understand how what's happening and you know it's well oh yeah but this happens in relationships in the book of second corinthians chapter 6 um, the bible tells us this that if we're a believer that we shouldn't date that you know a person who's not a christian and and here's what happens yeah but they're really nice yeah but she's really cute and she can always become a christian that, you know, that other girl's not cute and, you know, you become a Christian and that ain't going to help her situation, uh, at least looks wise. And so and so we kind of have this whole thing, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, should they be Christian? yeah, but they may not go to church. But. I, well, he dropped something on his foot, he said the name of Jesus, does that count? Uh, You know, how, how does that, you know, and, and so what we do is we just create like these, yeah, but uh, operate th- things. That, and you know what ends up taking place? is that it's just, all it is, is us trying to climb through the window of a door that God is closing. Here's what the Bible says, it's it's in your outline, it's a a couple of verses worthy of memorizing. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. It's Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Now that term, to acknowledge God, the the, the Hebrew word is the word yada, Y-A-D-A. And, and and I believe that that's kind of what we tend to do sometimes is in acknowledging God. We say, "Well, I know what God wants, yada yada yada," but I'm going to do the thing that I want to do. And 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 here's the thing: acknowledging God, acknowledge God in in all of your ways is really about being focused on Him and really knowing Him. You see, that's why that word yada is translate is used over 900 times in the Old Testament. And here's what it's translated as: to know. To know God in all of your ways. That is, so as as you know God, uh, 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 when you're going to travel in this way, here's what happens. I know what God has to say. I see that God's closing a door. What do I do? I'm going to acknowledge God in this. I'm going to know God in all of my ways and realize that if He's closing the door, I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to realize that as I go through this, if God's opening a door, then maybe I should walk through it. Because if God's... Opening a door and giving me an opportunity that we're going to talk about in a second Then maybe this is now the opportunity for me to walk through because god's opening a door that nobody can shut But he also has the opportunity to shut doors that no person can open And listen, that's the picture of health. That's what maturity is all about Is recognizing when god's opened the door that I walk through it when god closes the door That I don't try to get in through the window, but that I acknowledge him in all of my ways that's why Jesus says to this church, you have a little strength. That doesn't mean that they were wimpy. That means that they were actually depending on God for strength. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He would say, but, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake... I delight in weaknesses in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. What's Paul saying? He's saying that weak is the new strong. He's saying that, listen, this church was healthy because they recognized their dependence on God and on his word. But he doesn't stop there and just say that that's what health looks like. There's something else that he says that's so hugely important. But he says this. This is in verse nine. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will indeed make them come and worship before your feet that, and to know that I have loved you. And because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell On the earth. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I want to spend some time here because this is, I believe, one of the most important passages in the entire book of Revelation. Now, if the first part of the first picture of health of a believer is that they are dependent on Jesus, the second picture of health is that a believer is delivered by Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe this verse ten in particular that you will not be able to really understand the book of Revelation in its in its fullness, without having an understanding, I believe, of one key word. And we're going to spend a lot of time, and we're going to build a, a, this uh, and, and kind of unpack this entire kind of theological, doctrinal construct based on just this one word. And we're, you're going to see how it unpacks, and, and we're going to realize, like, wow, all of this came out of, of this one word. This is really important. And here's the thing. Most people who misinterpret the book of Revelation miss it right here. So I want you to be care, to listen carefully. I want you to take notes because it all comes down to this one word in verse 10 where he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. You say, that's it. I thought you were going to use like a big word and you're using a preposition. That's, that's the, that's, that's the word. He says, I'm going to keep you from the Greek word there. You see this in your notes is ek, EK. And that word means out of. Now, you, you may remember the term, we've used it at going through the seven churches, that we talk about the word for church in the original language is the word ecclesia, Ek, out of, that they are called out ones. That's what the word church means. People have been called out of darkness and into light. Now, and so he says that I'm going to keep you from, keep you out of, the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole world. Keep you from the hour of trial. What is the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world? In the book of Revelation, it's what we call the tribulation in chapter six. We're going to see the beginnings of the tribulation, and we'll see that in just a couple of weeks. And Jesus is telling this church, giving them a promise, because he says this, that I open doors that nobody can shut. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to open a door for you guys uh, to keep you out of the hour of trial that's coming upon the entire world. Now, let me tell you this. And this is what this is what's so important is that this has been the pattern throughout the scriptures that God has this way of separating those who are reserved for judgment and those whom he keeps out of that, that judgment who are walking with him. We see this um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, with a guy by the name of Lot. He's living in a city called Sodom. Now, you don't have to be, know much about the Bible to know if you're living in a city called Sodom or Gomorrah. That's just not even a good address to have. And so... Here's what happens is that the angel comes and says, we're going to wipe this place out. But here's what we're going to do. And this is what the angel says. But we can't do anything until you and your family get out of here. Why? Because God has a way of separating those who love him, those who are walking with him from those who don't care and do not seek to know him. So that's why, listen, the church does not go through this period of tribulation. They are kept out of that period of tribulation. Why? Because the wrath that the the tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on a world that doesn't want to know him. You see, and here's the thing that's important to understand. God is not going to pour out his wrath on believers. Why? Because any wrath that we were due was paid for by Jesus on the cross. So now that Jesus has paid for our sins We don't have to now pay for some more. No, Jesus said it is finished. It's covered, the whole thing. And so now, because of our standing, because Christ Jesus has forgiven us, because we we have that that understanding, because we have that connection to him and experiences his forgiveness, his love, his grace, he says this, now I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the person who says that the church is going through the tribulation, can I I just share this with you, doesn't understand the nature of the church. The word church in these first three chapters that we've been covering, is this word church is used 19 times. And yet once we hit chapter 4, once we hit the tribulation, the word church is never used until you get to chapter 22, when it's all said and done, Jesus came back, we all live happily ever after, and now it says, hey, the spirit and the bride, the church, say, come on, let's walk with God, let's do this. You see, that's what's so important. The tribulation is not meant for the church. And so part of this tribulation is God pouring out His wrath. Part of it is to wake up the nation of Israel. Because this specific period of time is so for God to see Israel finally wake up as to what's been going on. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it talks about this particular period of time. It says this, it says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. As I mentioned, this period is meant for Israel, not the church. And so what does God do? What does God exactly do? How does he get the church out of what's happening on planet Earth so that he can focus his attention on Israel and discipline a world that is sought to walk in the other direction from what God desires. But what he does is he actually removes the church in an event called the rapture of the church where God actually comes, according to the book of 1 Thessalonians, he comes with the shout of an archangel and he grabs the church and pulls them to heaven so that all of this can take place. So if you see those bumper stickers that say, you know, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, they might be onto something. Although my favorite bumper sticker is, in case of rapture, can I have your car? But that's another story. Um, but here's what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive... And our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You see, the church is taken to heaven so God can deal with Israel. And this has not been something that's, that God is saying, oh, I'm just kind of coming up with this. From about, you know, this has been revealed in about 600 BC. God started laying out the groundwork for when this was going to take place. In the book of Daniel, and we talked about Daniel a few weeks ago, if you were with us. Daniel is given this vision that an angel comes and explains to him what's going to happen. Here's what it says. This is in your notes, Daniel 924. It says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, to really understand this, we've got to understand one word there. It's, it's this word, the seventy-sevens. Now, what does that mean? The Hebrew word there is, is the word Shabuah. Now, the word Shabuah simply means a, a week of years. So if, we would, if someone says, you know, how long have you been at this job? Oh, I've been at this job for a Shabuah. You say, oh, you've been here for seven years. See, we have this understanding, too. Watch, I've got uh, one of these guys here. We have this in our culture. Um, here, we've got this, right? I have Dunkin' Donuts because only the best, right? Now, if I have Dunkin' Donuts and let's just say I open this up and I have, you know, 12 delight. Well, there were supposed to be 12 delightful donuts. And fortunately, someone here in the back decided to eat one. And so now I have 11, which ruins my illustration. But let's just say magically some person that I'm going to beat later didn't have one donut and there were actually 12 donuts here. All right. So let's just say that there were 12 donuts here. What would we call those? A dozen. Right. Well, we, we understand that. And so the idea is this, is that if I just said, well, there's a dozen, we would recognize that it's 12. If someone said, well, the, the, a Shabuah is seven. So if 70 Shabuahs, 77 year periods are determined for your people, And for your holy city, he says to Daniel, so then the idea would be 70 times 7. So it would be 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. By the way, does anybody want 11 donuts? Uh, Because now the illustration is ruined. So anyway, I'm going to give this to you. You can come over. Jump. There you go. Crisscross will make you jump. Anyway, um, there you go. 11 donuts. Feel free to make friends. Um, And so what happens is this. Now, this is the important part. I'm giving you all of this because we're kind of we're leading up to something that is, you know, woo-hoo, you're going to be really excited at all the kung fu that's been happening here. Now, here's the thing, is, is that um, 483 of these years have already been fulfilled. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you another couple more verses in, in Daniel and you'll see what it means. He says this, he says, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So uh, the idea is is that you take those 49 years and you take those other years, you add them up, and you've got 483 years. And it says, and it will be rebuilt. It will rebuilt, uh, Let me speak English here for a second. Uh, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, this is really, this is really important. Because, now, I understand that this is kind of like a word problem. Now, I don't know how many of you actually liked word problems in math class when you were in high school or whatever. If you if you did, uh, I believe there's medication available. Um, but here's the thing. like you know the word problem is like, you know, Joe is two years older than Carmencita. Carmencita is half the age of her mom. How old is her dad? You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. You know what I mean? So it's that kind of thing. So the idea is this. The idea is... The, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, we know when that took place because that's found in the book of Nehemiah. And, and so that happened when King Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. That happened on March 14th, 445 B.C. And so you're like, man, I sh-, you're thinking I should have brought an old calendar with me to kind of track this. Now, this is when the clock starts ticking. And it goes now for these, you know, 483 years. And so here's what happens. Now, the angel says that from the time that that's given until the Messiah comes, that once that clock runs out, those 483 years, that this was when, that's when that's when the Messiah will come. Now, because. I like to be technical. This 483 years. Remember, they're working on a lunar calendar, which is a 360-day calendar. So it's 173,880 days. Now you say, now you say, now I shouldn't have brought a, uh, a, 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 ma- a calendar. I should have brought my calculator and my Bible to church with me. Well, here's what happens. If you calculate 173,880 days from that March 14th, 445 BC, and you calculate that all the way, where do you land? You land on April 6, 32 A.D. Now the question is, what happened on April 6, 32 A.D.? April 6, 32 A.D. was a really interesting date. And here's why. It's because this day, everybody was excited in Jerusalem. In fact, everybody was so excited that they were saying this psalm. This psalm in Psalm 118, verse 24, that says, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now most of us, you know, we hear that and we say that because we think like, that just means like I'm gonna have a good day. But that's actually referring to a specific day in Jewish history. That that would be the day that the Messiah comes. In fact, people gathered to the temple, to the city of Jerusalem. It was around the, it was close to the time of Passover. People were really, really, really excited. In fact, they brought all of their palm branches into the city and laid them so that when the Messiah showed up, He would be able to come in walking on these palm branches. And then they would wave their palm branches, saying, uh, quoting another passage in Psalm 118, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, a word that means in Hebrew, save us now. And what happens on that day, April 6, 32 A.D.? Jesus, who all through His ministry... People have been asking him, are you the Messiah? He dodges the question. People want to set him up as king and he runs through the crowd. All these crowds show up and then he slips out the back. But now this day is a little bit different. This day he lets everybody know. People are worshiping him. People are saying, you're the Messiah. And he's he's saying, "Okay." he sends out the press releases that he's going to be there. And now he rolls in on the colt, on the donkey. He comes in recognizing, hailing himself as the Messiah on this very day, 173,880 days on the nose from the day that the order was given. Now you say, Bob, that sounds very exciting. And you seem, sound, seem very excited about it. It's almost like you were there. Uh, I'm old, but not that old. And uh, Now here's the thing. But here's the other thing that Daniel says in that passage, that, the, that this Messiah is going to be cut off and receive nothing. You see, because he's supposed to bring in everlasting righteousness and all of that that we, that we talked about, but it says that he's cut off. Why? Because there was a group of people there that day on April 6, 32 AD, the religious leaders who said, this guy who's claiming to be the Messiah isn't the kind of Messiah that we're looking for. We're looking for someone who's going to overthrow Rome. We're looking for someone who's going to do something a little bit different than what this guy says he's going to do. And so they plot to kill him. And so they do. They didn't expect him to rise again three days later, but that's another story. But So here's what takes place. Sixty-nine of these 70 weeks have been fulfilled. But there's one seven-year period that remains. The seven year period called the tribulation in described in Revelation, chapter six through 19. And that's why Jesus going back to this word, ek, this word keeping you from the hour of trial, he says, I'm taking you out so that I can deal with this group of people for this seven year period. You see, this period is not meant for us. In fact, the Bible tells us this. Let me read it to you in the book of Romans. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. You see, the idea is this, is that once the last Gentile comes to know Jesus, now, you know, what's going to happen. This rapture is going to take place and then God is going to turn his attention to Israel. Now, if you want you say, man. Uh, this, this rapture thing sounds exciting. It sounds kind of Star Trek, Be Me Up Scotty-ish. You know, I, I like that. You say, well, I, I'd, I'd like to see that happen. Now, what can I do? Here's what you do. You invite your peeps to our Easter service. Why? Because one of your friends might be the last one. Think about that. One of your friends, I'm not going. I don't care about church. I don't care about God. That might be the person we're waiting on. I mean, it's like the elevator is going up and we're holding the door for one more person to come in. And and that's like kind of what's happening. And that's why as we get to chapter six, we're going to talk about signs of the times that are happening. And we're going to realize that it's not that we're living in the last days. I mean, we're living in the last of the last days. And Jesus is about ready to come back. And listen, he's trying to get as many people to draw close to him, to come to know him as possible before this period of time begins. The Bible tells us this in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, that's why I believe that God has given us this incredible opportunity with Easter. When people are more open to the gospel than ever. And so now we have this opportunity, and the question is, are we going to use the opportunity to see people that we know that are far from God come to know Him? And here's what I can promise you is that if you can get your family and your friends and your classmates and your co-workers here, that we will give the clearest, most compelling presentation of the gospel that we know how to do. And I believe that's an opportunity that we have to partner together. So if, if the church is if a healthy believer, a healthy church is one that's dependent on Jesus, that's delivered by Jesus. Here's the third one. It's one that's displayed by Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's Uh, how we draw it to a close in, in verse 11. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a temple in the pillar of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. the churches. Now, what do I mean by that is displayed by Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We've all experienced it, right? We've all stayed up too late at some particular night and we've watched all the infomercials that tell us that we should, uh, you know, buy this type of exercise equipment that'll get us ripped. You know, like I saw this new thing. uh, Have you seen this one? It's called the red. Have you seen the red? Uh, Here's what it is. You basically sit on it and then you just kind of turn it. And this is all you have to do. And you will get ripped. I mean, ripped. Now, you're probably going to get ripped off, but anyway, but you're, I mean, that, that's the whole thing, is that all you've got to do is sit. Now, the thing that's amazing about this, this like marketing strategy is that, you know, I'm sitting there watching the red, and I'm thinking, man, I'm sitting right now. But I could be sitting and getting ripped. Now, instead, I could be getting a six pack, now I'm just adding more to the keg. Uh, and it, instead I could be, I could be get, getting, ripped if I just sit and just go like this, I'm telling you, do this at home. I mean, you will look like a different person by tomorrow morning. If you just do this for like 800,000 hours, I mean, I'm telling you something will happen. And, and so but the thing is this, and, and here's the thing, this is why the infomercial people are so smart because they know that what, what really attracts us is the before and after, right? Now people say, what are you doing? I say, I'm working on my before shot. And so, uh, now here's the thing. Now, they look at the before, and have you noticed that in the before and after shot, the before person always looks depressed. They're like this. And the after person is like this. And they're always like kind of leaning forward, you know, turned to the side. Anyway, do they not know that we see that? But it doesn't matter. It still works on millions of people. That's why these people are still in business. But the whole idea is this. The display is this. Nobody displays, you know, the before shot without the after shot. And this church is the after picture. I mean, completely the after picture. There's all these churches that we've been looking at in Revelation that just represent, you know, all these believers that were just all messed up. And and, and here's the thing. Now you've got this church and this church was like the picture of health. It's like, you want to be like this by the red? No, Uh, he says, you want to be like this? I mean, this is the church. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? What does a pillar do? A pillar supports, but a pillar is also there to honor. And that's why Jesus says, listen, if you honor me, I will honor you. That is a principle of spiritual life. That if you honor God in an area of life, that he in turn will honor you. And it doesn't matter the area, whether it's your relationships, your finances, your words, your actions, your time, your gifts and talents, whatever it is, you honor God, God will honor you. In the book of First Samuel, God says this, I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disgraced. And that's why Jesus says that I will write on him a new name. Why? Think about this. When you write your name on something, you know that represents ownership. It represents ownership. When you, have, you go to a party and someone gives you the infamous red plastic cup that is standard for all parties in Western civilization... And so you get the red plastic cup and then they give you the Sharpie pen. It's like, we don't even have to, we don't, words are not even necessary anymore. Here's the cup, here's the pen. What do you do? You write your name on it. You don't write happy birthday, right? I'm here for, you know, you just, you write your name on it. And now the understanding is once I've written my name on it, there's an ownership relationship between me and the cup. And if you have your name on it and somebody else says, oh, I like that. And they start taking a sip. Now you've got the poten- a potential fight on your hands. All because you wrote your name on a cup. You didn't even have to have taken a sip out of it yet. But once you wrote the name on the cup, you recognized the cup belongs to you. We were cleaning up some stuff in our house, uh, cleaning out a, a, a closet. And my wife pulls out my I should have brought it. My original Simon game. Now, how many of you remember the game Simon? Look at this. All right. All right. I was not to tell you, I'm, I'm awesome. So if we play, you're probably going to lose. But so, but I mean, and it still works because every couple of years I take it out, I put fresh batteries in it. But I remember even as a youngster, I mean, I was like five years old. You'll see There's like, uh, like masking tape on it and it says Robert F on it. And it's like, the understanding is this, I've been dragging that thing around. My wife has hinted to me that I should throw it away. And I'm like, woman, uh, you know, I will throw out many other things before I throw that thing out. Um, I'll throw my car away before I throw that out. Uh, anyway, so the point is this, is that you get this, this whole thing, but the understanding is this, I write my name on it. There's a, there's a representation of relationship and an identification uh, of ownership. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, because you're healthy, because you're dependent on me, you're going to be delivered by me, but you're also going to be displayed by me because I'm making you a pillar that's what a healthy Christian is. They're a pillar in the midst of their friends. They're a pillar in the midst of the people that they uh, that they find themselves in, in, in contact with. They're a pillar wherever it is that they go. And so that's why Jesus says, listen, you, you're, 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 I'm going to support the work that you're doing. You're supporting now the, 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 the furtherance of the gospel. And, and here's the thing that's happening. Is that now I'm going to honor you. And that's why God, as, as a healthy believer does, experiences that. But see, the question that comes down to it is this. As we say that, man, has, has Jesus written his name on us? I mean, is, is there that kind of relationship that I recognize, like I've given my life to him? The Bible says this, the, the, a person who's a believer, that he says, I no longer consider my life dear to myself. My life is no longer my own. I've given my life to him. I did my life, and it was a disaster. And instead, I turned over my life to him, and what he's done is something amazing. You see, if you haven't allowed him to write his name on you as you've given your life to him, then maybe that's the very purpose for which you came here today. And so, a healthy believer, it's possible. The writing on us, it's possible, but it begins with the decision to say, Jesus, come into my life because I'm laying my life down for you. I'm I'm, I'm relinquishing control because I want to be forgiven by you because I want to walk with you. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your promise that we don't have to experience great tribulation. You told us that in this world we would have tribulation, but God, we know it's not the same. We thank you for the promise that you're coming back. And, God, that you're going to do and work in us. Thank you for the doors that you open that no one can close. And thank you as well for the doors that you close that no one can open. In Jesus' name, amen.